I want you to stand with me if you would, and let's read that Bible. Let's read Jude together. We're going to read two verses. And we're in almost to the end of the Bible. This is the book of Jude. It's right before you get to Revelation. It's called the letter of Jude. It's one chapter. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You may be seated. We're going to cover verses three and half of, or maybe even two-thirds of verse four, but I want to introduce to you a person that you're about to see on the video. His name is Rodney Howard Brown, and he's the self-professed Holy Ghost bartender who started the laughter movement back in the early 1990s. Now listen, I want you to know the truth. I want you to listen with discernment as we watch this video together. I don't understand why people have a problem with joy in church. (laughs) Because you can come to church all happy, excited, talking to your friend. The moment you walk in the door, everybody's stirring, you know, they're sitting there. You don't want to even cough. You You don't want to even open up a mint because now you're in the presence of God. It's all right. This this is called joy. It's okay. The Lord's in total favor of it. You can have some. Touch your Lord. Touch your Jesus. Touch your Jesus. The best way I could describe it is drunkenness. Like you're inebriated. I mean, you're you're there. You're aware of what's going on, but you don't really want to stop. When somebody gets prayed for and they fall out on the ground, they're kind of just laying there. We kind of call that carpet time. Right now, right now, right now. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And we just became toast. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> this is my friend from Canada. He's a laughologist. <laughs> he is. He's a laughologist. And he's come to study what's happening here. I never knew he was a laughologist. <laughs> Pastors from Toronto came to Brown's Revival Services, and when they came there, he imparted the gift of holy laughter to them. They went back to Toronto, they went back to their Canadian churches, 
And there it spread into eventually the vineyard churches and it went mainstream all through hundreds of thousands of people involved in the charismatic denomination. Brown says it began in 1979. I want you to hear this. Are you ready? This is, a, this is a heart cry of almost every Christian that I know. Who wants and hungers for a deeper experience with God. Don't you hunger for that? Well, Brown hungered for that and he prayed to God, quote, either you come down here and touch me or I will come up there and touch you. And suddenly, he says, his whole body felt like it was on fire and he began to laugh uncontrollably. And the people in the Holy Laughter movement describe a feeling of drunkenness accompanied by laughter and animal-like noises and crawling around the floor, shaking and gyrating. Brown says this, I quote, I'd rather be in a church where the devil and the flesh are manifesting than in a church where nothing is happening because people are too afraid to manifest anything. And if the devil manifests, don't worry about that either. Rejoice because at least something is happening. Those who are proponents of the holy laughter movement, which is still alive today, they say, let yourselves go. Don't think about what you're doing. Just give yourselves completely to the Spirit. In fact, John Wimber who was the head or is the head of the Vineyard Movement, he's the founder, rather, of the Vineyard Movement, he said, there's nothing in Scripture that supports these kind of phenomena that I can see, so I feel no obligation to try to explain it. The Holy Laughter Movement, friends, is still around. It has inundated movements such as Joel's Army, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, the Sons of Thunder, many, many more movements. And we're told in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, how do you test? The Word of God. Here's what the Word of God says. If the Spirit of God is producing something, I want you to hear this, and I want you to look at me for a moment, and you can look it up later because I might miss a word in this. I'm going to do it from memory. But here's what the Word of God says in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control. And I know I'm missing one, but I want you to see there's no drunken laughter. It's self-control. If the, if the Spirit of God is birthing a movement, it will be a movement towards those traits, those characteristics, and self-control is one of the fruit. So we're in a series in Jude where we're seeing that the most serious attacks from the enemy of God and God's people, listen, they come from inside the church. That's where the most serious attacks are coming from. From those who claim to be Christians, some of which are false teachers. And we've got a lot to see in these two little verses today, so let's jump right in it. How do we contend for the faith? That's what he's going to argue, Jude is. That's what he's going to command us. That's what he's going to encourage us. How do we contend for the faith? Let me give you four ways that you contend for the faith. Here's the first. Be loving enough 
Be loving enough that you're willing to caution. Be loving enough that you're willing to caution. If you know somebody, if you have somebody that you care about, and they're beginning to believe something that does not ring true according to the scriptures, something that gets your discernment up. Well, if you're really loving, you will caution them. And if you remember last week, we saw who we are in Christ. Christian, we saw who we are in Christ. We saw our Christian identity. We saw the riches that we possess. And God wants us to possess them in increasing measure. Their true riches, their mercy, their peace, and their love. They're the best riches that you could possibly ever want. And I believe that when we look in Jude in verse 3, we're going to see that... Part of who it is to be in Christ is that we will defend the faith and we will love enough other people. We will love people enough to be able to caution them. By the way, you know what Jude's name means? You know what the name Jude means? It means praise. And by the way, he wanted to write a whole letter on praise. Look at what he writes. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Listen, he wanted to write a letter that was all about those spiritual riches, all about that Christian identity. A, a letter where he could praise God and lead God's people into greater praise. But look what he says. Instead, it was necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. You see, he sees false teachers coming into the church. Now, I want you to raise your hand. You be honest, and you, you're, you don't need to raise your hand for this. If you can see false teaching coming into the church, you can discern it. You know it's, you know it's there, and you can name it. You can identify it, and you're worried about it. You're concerned about it. I want you to raise your hand for a moment. See, my aim in this series is that we would know the truth so well that when you see or hear false teaching, you will begin to reveal it. You'll, be, you'll begin to contend for the faith. Jude says, I was going to write to you a letter of praise, a letter of praise about salvation, but I couldn't. I've got to write to you and I'm appealing to you. Get in the ring, contend for the faith. In fact, listen to this love. Three times, three times, he calls them beloved. If you've got an NIV Bible, it's translated dear friends. He loves these people. Listen, if you're a pastor that loves your flock, if you're a teacher that loves your students, you will warn them. You will let them know when danger is coming. Can you imagine parents saying that you love your children, watching them go towards danger, watching danger come towards them, and you do nothing. You're inactive and you say nothing to rescue them. Would that really be love? That wouldn't be love. None of us as parents would do that. And so Jude, who three times says that you're my beloved, you are my dear friends, I care about you, I love you, I want to protect you. He's going to speak into the apostasy that he sees occurring. He's going to protect his friends in Christ. Now listen, that's point number one. If you really love your friends and you see false teaching, you will warn them. 
And you will contend for the faith. But there's another point. I'm going to go through the first two pretty quickly. We're going to really get into points three and four. Point number two, be brave enough that you're willing to contend. So love people enough that you're willing to caution them, but be brave enough that you're willing to contend. Here's what Jude writes again. I'm appealing to you. I'm going to show you what that word appealing means. It's pretty awesome. I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, that word appealing. Beautiful word in the Greek. In fact, it's one of my favorite words in all of the Greek language. It's a powerful word. You know what it means? It means to call someone to your aid. It means I need help. I need help and I'm asking you to come and help me. I can't protect the faith alone. Come along beside me and contend against these false teachers. That's what Jude is saying. Listen, I'm not there. I'm not a pastor of your church. I'm the evangelist. I went around preaching and led a lot of you to the Lord. And you're my children in Christ. And you've gathered in these churches. And I am jealous for your faith. I want you to remain faithful to Jesus. But here come false teachers. And they're leading you astray. And I need you to get in the ring with me and help. And notice with me, as I show you on these screens, the root of the Greek word for contend. Do you see it in there? I've underlined it for you. Agon. You know, in the period of time where Jude is written, that word, agon, was used for... And I want you to get this. Now look at me for a second. This word was used for the place where a contest occurred. A place where a battle or an athletic event or a debate or a lawsuit. It was the place, the arena for a battle. In fact, it referred to athletes who would contend in their events vigorously, intensely, determinedly, struggling to defeat the opposition. We get the word agony from it. As athletes exert themselves to the point of great pain in order to win. Or or think of the word agonize, meaning to make a great effort or struggle. Now you're understanding what it means to contend. Jude is calling the church. You've got to get in the arena. You've got to be willing to fight. And even if it loses you some reputation, even if people reject you and get angry at you, you've got to fight. You've got to love enough to fight. Because I can't do this. On my own. He's calling the church. And listen, this is you. Now, now I want you to think about this. Do you claim to be a Christian? Have you put your faith exclusively in Jesus Christ as, a, as the way to God the Father? Is it through Jesus alone that when you trust Him, He will save you, He will forgive you from your sins, and He will give you eternal life, and eternal life starts that moment. Now, if that's you, if you put your faith in Jesus, then he's calling you, Judas. He's calling you. He's calling me. You've got to get in the arena and you've got to protect the faith. Look what he says. You've got to contend for the faith. Now, I want you to see something. Are you ready? You're a student of the word of God. Every word's important. He didn't say contend for a faith. 
He didn't say my faith. He didn't even say our faith. Listen, he said the faith. That means this is objective. It's not subjective. This isn't what I want to believe. These are my personal convictions. These are God's opinions. These are what God believes. This is what God has given to us. The faith is the body of the word of God. And it's God's property. Listen, it is God's property. Not mine. This is not the, the, the word faith is not the word that means, you know, I've got to somehow believe and I've got to somehow trust. That's not what this word faith means. The faith is the knowledge of truth that is made clear in the word of God. You've got to protect and contend for that because that is under attack. It's a noun. Now, one of the things that I teach And I try to practice and I slip it up. I try not to do this when I preach. Here I can work off my notes so I don't slip up as often when I'm preaching as I do maybe when I'm leading a life group or teaching a class. Listen, I don't think you really are that interested in what I think the scripture says. Can I, can I come at that maybe from a different angle? Listen, I don't want you to be that interested in what I think. The scripture says, just tell me what the word of God says. That's how I preach. I just want to tell you what the word of God says. You've got to believe it or not. You've got to do something with that. You've got to bring it in the grace of God and the power of the spirit down into your heart where it transforms. So listen, this isn't what I think God might be saying to us. This is simply what God is saying to us through an inspired writer named Jude. Listen, don't work, don't care about my opinion. And don't freely give your opinion unless you carefully tell them, this is my opinion, I don't really know if it's right, but this is what I think it's saying. Listen, that's okay if you bracket it with, I'm veering from what is clear in Scripture to now saying what I think it might be saying. But if you're going to sit under a preacher, let them and ask them and require them to just simply tell you what the Word of God is saying. And I want you to discern that. Now, let me go back two weeks ago. Do you remember if you were here two weeks ago, I told you that some of you, I'm going to ruffle some feathers. Some of you may not like me too much because I might bring up one of these preachers or teachers that you particularly like. And whose teaching you've been following for years. Now listen, some cases, and I'll explain this briefly a little later, and as I go through this series, in some cases, I'm really not saying they're a false prophet or a false teacher. I'm saying you've got to discern, because while they might be doing some good work in the church, there's some bad theology, there's some bad doctrine. You've got to learn to listen and hear it. But I'm going to bring you a clip from a preacher that... I don't really know why, he's pretty popular... Probably because he smiles so much. I want you to listen to what you're saying. Remember what I just said? That don't, don't look for, don't let your heart yearn for what the preacher thinks the Word of God is saying. Let it yearn for what the Word of God plainly is saying. Listen to this clip. A member of your congregation comes to you and says, Joel, I really want to vote for Romney, but I'm concerned because he's a Mormon I'm not sure he's a Christian. 
What do you say to that congregant? Well, my personal views, Wolf, is that when I hear Mitt Romney say that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Christ raised from the dead, that he's his Savior, that's good enough for me. And I would encourage them in the same way is, you know what, we don't all have the same views. And I realize Mormonism is not traditional Christianity, but I'm probably a little broader and more open in the fact that when somebody loves Jesus and believes they're the Son of God, that's good for me. Remember a 2011 Pew poll, 32% say they don't believe the Mormon faith is a Christian religion. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But what I hear you saying is you do believe it's a Christian religion, sort of. Well, I do. I, do. I, th- I believe there there are things that are the same but there you know obviously there's if you get deeper into it there's things that's not traditional christianity but i'm looking at more the broadness of of when somebody believes that jesus is their savior and the son of god to me that believe i believe they're a believer in christ now if you hear that on the news and you're watching that clip and you're listening with discernment and you're knowing the truth something ought to start wiggling around in your discernment And there's lots of room, now listen, there's lots of room under orthodoxy, the body of Christian truth. There's lots of room for differing opinions. Some of you might believe that, you know what, the sign gifts, speaking in tongues, healing, all of that, that ceased with the end of the apostles. You may believe that, I personally don't. I believe they can still continue. Not usually in the way that we're seeing them in in the churches. I think it brings order when the Spirit of God is doing it. I think those gifts confirm the Word of God, not tack on the Word of God to confirm the gift. But listen, you, there's room to differ and still be in Christ. But let me take you behind the scenes of Mormonism. You ready? Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. Are you hearing me? The spirit brother of Satan, both of which were born of a heavenly God and a heavenly mother. And they teach that all spirit babies of God will one day, if you live by his plan, become gods. Jesus was the firstborn, Lucifer was the secondborn, and when the councils in heaven got together and they asked each other, who would go for us and redeem the earth, both of them said they would go, but Jesus was chosen, Lucifer then got angry and rebelled and tried to destroy his plan. That's Mormonism. And with all respect that I can to Pastor Joel, I'm really not concerned, Joel, with your personal opinion, which is what you give. I want to know what the Word of God says about these spiritual issues, because Mormonism is almost diametrically opposed to Christianity. What does God plainly think, and what does God plainly make clear in His Word? And are you brave enough... To be willing to contend. That's what Jude is calling us to do. From the scriptures, the faith. Look at your text if you would. The faith revealed. It's been once for all delivered to the saints. Did you catch that phrase? This is so important. 
And I'll show you some as we go in this series. You've got the emergent church. They're doing all sorts of changes to the Word of God. You don't just get the Word of God. You sit down and you have a conversation about the Word of God. And what emerges from that conversation is the new interpretation of the Word of God. But it's been once for all delivered to the saints. And one of the most distinguishing marks of false teaching. Now listen to this. If you don't get anything else today but this, then hold on to this. Because one of the most clear and the most distinguishing marks of false teaching is the is either the adding into the word of God or the attacking of what the word of God plainly says. Listen, you can't be a false teacher without doing one or more or both of those. There is a finality to the faith. It's been once for all delivered to the saints. It is God's complete revelation to us. You see, the cults say that is a part of God's revelation to us, but I'm getting new dreams. God's streaming new information. I'm getting new revelation, and I'm his anointed authoritative one, and I'm telling you now what the word of God really says, or what's in addition to the word of God. That's how you begin a cult, and all of a sudden, that preacher, what Jude's going to call that dreamer, is put up in a level of authority that you've got to listen to me or your soul might be destroyed. Christian, listen, be confident, be confident in the word of God. It's enough. It is all of God's counsel that he intended to give us. It's sufficient for life and doctrine. And you could defend it against those who distort it. So, love people enough to caution them. Be brave enough to be willing to contend. And thirdly, be wise enough that you're able to catch those who are distorting the truth. Now look with me, if you would, at Jude. Now I want you to get your Bibles out. Now, now let me say this really quickly. If you could look back up here for a minute. Then you can look down. Listen, here's what false teachers do. Here's what false preachers do when they're preaching. Almost always. You ready? Look at me. They do this. They got their Bible open. Listen, just because I've got my Bible open doesn't mean what I'm saying is right. Some people put their mind in neutral. He's got the Bible open. He's preaching the Bible. Then what he's going to say must be right. Listen, there's ways to interpret the Bible. And you've got to put it in context. And you've got to put it against the rest of the Bible to see if it differs from the rest of the Bible, then what you're interpreting isn't right. Because the Bible is cohesive. The Bible doesn't fall apart. It's not inconsistent. The Old Testament is similar to the New Testament. Here's how you could say it. You ready? The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. I'm saying it again the other way. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It's all one seamless story of God's redemption, old and new. You're not looking at two totally different. Now, I'm going to show you that when we get to the fourth point, because some people excise and they cut the Old Testament out of their faith. They said, I just want to be a New Testament Christian. And some even go more. I don't want to just be a New Testament. Now, listen, I don't want to just be a New Testament Christian. I want to be a red letter Christian. I only want to study and know the the words of Jesus. And when you only study and know the words of Jesus, and then the rest of the Bible is on the cutting room floor. And all of a sudden, what you've got is a gospel that is all about social action, not about proclamation. You've got to know the word of God. You've got to be wise enough 
that you're able to catch. Look what Jude does in verse 3. He calls these apostates, he calls these people certain people. You see that? Certain people. And look what he does in verse 8, and he does it again in verse 10. He now calls them, he progresses, he calls them these people. Now look what he does in verses 12, 14, 16, and 19. As he's progressing, it's not certain people, it's not these people, it's just these. It's almost like Jude is dehumanizing these false teachers. He doesn't have a lot of respect for them. He doesn't have kind words for them. He doesn't have tolerance for them. And for some people today, that's just not acceptable. You've got to be gracious to everybody. And it's not right for Pastor Tim to call out false teachers or teachers who have problems in their doctrine or theology. Jude wouldn't agree with you. By the way, either would Jesus, who called out the Pharisees and scribes, either would John, either would Peter, either would Paul, either would the Old Testament, Moses. Listen, it's okay, graciously, in order to protect the church, to name those who are coming into the church to try to destroy the truth, the faith. Look what he says in verse 22, Jude does. Have mercy on those who doubt because of these false teachers. So he wants mercy for those Christians who are now doubting. But he doesn't offer mercy to the apostates. He says, verse 3, they were long ago designated for this condemnation. And that's pretty frightening. You know what you can do out of that? You know what some people have done? They've come up with a thing called double predestination. That God chooses some to go to heaven, and he chooses some to damn them and put them in hell. And they get that out of this verse. That's not what this verse means. It doesn't mean that God made these men become false teachers and so that he's responsible for their sin. What it means is this. He ordained long ago, Old Testament new, that those who are going to be false teachers, false prophets, those who corrupt his word, they're going to be judged and they're going to be condemned. They're going to be fiercely disciplined, fiercely judged. So Jude deals severely with them. You want to know what good preaching looks like? And I'm trying to learn it. I'm not there yet. But here's what good preaching looks like. You preach in accordance with the tone of the text. So if Jesus is calling out the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 23, and the preacher's up there, and he's talking with little Tweety birds and flowers and say what, what nice people they must have been, but they forfeited the grace that could have been there. Listen, you're out of accordance with the text. You preach in accordance with the text. Jude is writing in accordance with the truth. Their condemnation was chosen, determined long ago. Why? Because they have crept in unnoticed. Do you see that in verse 3? They've crept in unnoticed. You know what that word means? It means to sneak into a place from a side entrance. Now you got to get this. You got to hold this, friends. You got to know the truth. False teachers sneak. They creep. Rarely do they burst on the scene. In fact, in the Greek language, secular Greek, this word crept described the way that a lawyer would sneak into the minds of the jury or the judge to influence or corrupt their thinking. It, it described a criminal who was exiled from a country but found another way back in. He's saying they're creeping, sneaking 
in to the church unnoticed. Nobody's noticing them. They're under the radar. They're, no one is watching. You know what that looks like? No one's watching. It means that you read any and every Christian book that's recommended to you or that you hear about without discerning and without your Bible being open. False teaching is finding its way in even through the books on Christian bookstores' shelves. Or when you pop on the television and you listen to that television evangelist or preacher and that person's got their Bible open and they've got a huge congregation and they're passionate about what they're saying and all of a sudden you kind of think, well, you know what? they got to be right. I don't know. It doesn't sound right, but it's got to be right. Well, you know what? Fred Price once said that Jesus committed suicide on the cross. Here's the camera pans his congregation of thousands and some of the people were going... And others were scribbling down notes and going, Amen. Listen, you've got to have people on the watchtower and they've got to be watching because false teaching is trying to creep. They're trying to find a side entrance into the church. And the way you watch is this. Examine their doctrine and examine their life. Now listen, I'm inviting you. This is kind of scary. I'm inviting you to do this for me. Listen, I'm not exempt from this. Every word I tell you, you've got to have your word out. You've got to have the Bible open. But more than that, you've got to be thinking, is what Pastor Tim is saying, is that really right? And if a flag goes up, listen, I can be wrong. I'm not infallible. I can teach in error. You've got to be able to see it if I do it and then to be able to come to me and let me know. But you can't separate my life from my preaching. So you get to verse 4. Look what it says. The ungodly. You see that word, the ungodly, which means to be without God. God's not the center of their lives. Look at verse 15. The Lord will convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. You see what Jude is saying over and over. Listen, look at their godliness. Look at their life. And see if it adds up to the gospel. To see if it adds up to what they're preaching. Because an ungodly person is a person without a relationship with God. And sooner or later it will become evident. Love them enough to caution. Be brave enough, be brave enough that you're willing to contend. Be wise enough that you're able to catch. And finally, be knowledgeable enough that you will critique. You know, Jude's not talking about teachers who, and you really got to hear this. You really need to hear this. I really, I want you to hear this because it's so important that you know my heart. Jude is not talking about teachers who have accidentally gotten some of the gospel wrong. We're all prone to that. Now listen, if you lead a life life group, if you teach a class to men or women or both, if you preach... You're prone to error, just like I am. You don't have it all right. You don't yet know the full mind of God. And so we are learners, and we're, we must be teachable and humble enough to be able to learn and to be able to grow in the knowledge of what we've got, of, of what we have with God. But these are false teachers. Now listen, they're not poor teachers, they're false teachers. 
And they've got an agenda, and the agenda is to corrupt the faith. So he says in verse 4, as he begins to show us the false teachers, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And we're going to look at that one today, the next one next week. Here's what they're doing. Ready? Now get your discernment on. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And this has been happening since... The early church, false teachers hate grace. You hear that? False teachers hate grace, which is the unearned, the undeserved, willing power of God to take away our sins and help us to mature in Christ. That's what grace does. And false teachers, they hate it. So they turn it into legalism. They turn it into, it's got to be the cross of Christ plus your efforts. Or it's got to be your efforts and then the cross of Christ. Either way, it turns grace into legalism. And it's available, grace is available to you if you do what is required. But that's what they're doing. They're perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. Or they teach that you can, that grace is no longer needed. It was needed to save you, but now you don't need it anymore. Now you're saved. You've got a new heart. You're perfect in Christ. You don't need grace anymore. So it doesn't matter what you do in your life. It's the second one that was invading the church in the time of Jude. It was a false teaching that turned grace into a license to sin. Now, by the way, and I'm going to bring this out in a minute, don't think that's not alive and well in your life and in my life because the traces of it are still there. You know, preaching has radically changed in the last 30 years. You ready? You're going to know this, I think, when I tell you it. It's moved from preaching theology to therapy. From preaching theology to therapy... And now, in the last 15 years, it's moved again, not theology, not therapy, but motivational speaking. That's now where we're at with preaching. And in those churches where it's not theology, but therapy and motivational speaking, their stance against sin is rarely mentioned. God's wrath against sin is redefined as incompatible with His love. Now you heard that, right? His wrath against sin that was laid onto the head of Jesus Christ for our sins, that's incompatible, they say, with His love. You know, if you want to grow a church fast, now listen, maybe somebody's going to leave here and go start a church. I'll tell you how you grow it. Here's how you grow it quickly. Make the world comfortable and make the gospel agreeable. That's all you got to do. The world will pour in. They're searching. They're going to like, they're going to like preaching that caters to their flesh. If you want to grow a church quick, that's all you got to do. And if you're going to do that, then You've got to emphasize grace. Listen, you've got to emphasize grace and then exclude the moral law and holiness. Just don't talk about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And don't talk a lot about holiness. Just talk about grace, grace, grace. You'll grow your church quickly. 
And it plagued the early church, and it still does today. The belief, now listen, here's what it is. I'm going to sum it up. The belief that the gospel of grace frees Christians from needing to obey the moral law of God today. That's the, that's the prevalent grace, hyper-grace movement today. And it views the Old Testament, the Old Testament, as useful today, mainly for the metaphors and the types and the symbols regarding the coming of Christ. So they go back to the Old Testament to see how it foreshadows Christ. That's the usefulness of the Old Testament. Beyond that, it's all New Testament. And even more hyper-grace, it's all red letters of Jesus. They don't focus on the Old Testament. Because for Christians today, it's all about the New Testament. Now listen, every single one. You got to hear this. Every single one of the Ten Commandments, the moral law, were affirmed in the New Testament. And the gospel of grace, listen, gives us the willing power through Christ to obey them. You don't become a Christian under the new covenant of grace and then you can have adultery, you can steal, you can covet, you can lie. Listen, the the moral law is lifted up even higher in Christ than it was in the Old Testament. Except now because of Christ, because of his death and burial and resurrection, he, he gives you the power through grace to be able to live and affirm and uphold the moral law. But these false teachers were saying, you can do whatever you want. Grace is supreme. The law is dead. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do with your hands. It's only the heart, and your heart is perfect in Christ. You can do what you want. Remember, that'll grow a church quickly. It'll bring the world in. And it won't change them. See, this is cheap grace. And it guts the faith of its moral imperatives and it changes it to license. We can, we all contend, and listen, we all tend to do this. Uh, here's, here's how we do this. We can presume upon grace. You know, you sin, you know you shouldn't do it. But there's a little niggling little thought in the back of your mind that goes, you know, I, I can ask for forgiveness. I can confess it. And I know my God will take it. And it waters down the holy zeal. That's hyper-grace. Grace should move you to holy living. It should move me to holy living. But for these teachers, since all of our sins are paid for by Christ, then it doesn't really matter if we continue to sin, since all of the sins were put on Him. See, the false teachers believed that grace put them above the moral law of God. And when a false teacher can successfully reject the law and convince the people that God is concerned with love and grace alone, then sin becomes a rarely used word and preaching becomes therapeutic and motivational and the Bible gets redefined. Listen, here's how it gets redefined. Homosexuality is not wrong as long as the two faithfully love each other. Hell gets emptied of of everyone. Everybody's going to make it, Rob Bell says. It might take some longer than others. Rob Bell is one of the most popular preachers in America. Everybody's going to end there. Love wins. It just takes some a little longer to get there. And the wrath of God gets replaced by His love. I'm going to show you an example of how this just happened recently. In the PCUSA, that's a mainline Presbyterian church. And I've got friends in the PCUSA. 
They just redid their hymnals. And they're deciding whether they're going to put the Gettys song that we sing in Christ alone in that hymnal. And they were struggling because of one of the lines. Here's the line. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now listen, the grace, grace, grace crowd doesn't want to talk about wrath. They don't want to talk about sin. They just want to talk about God's love. They want the good news of the gospel without the bad. But there is no good news without the bad. It's the bad news that makes the good so good. So they came to the Gettys who wrote the song and they said, listen, can we redo that one lyric to this? As Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. The Gettys rejected it. Amen. Listen, if you drop what's called penal substitution, the doctrine the theory, the doctrine that God put all of his wrath on Jesus' son and put the righteousness of the son onto the believing sinner. If you reject that and you replace that with love, then what you get is a watered-down gospel that doesn't have the bad news that makes the good news so good. It was rejected, so the PCUSA decided by a vote of 9 to 6 they weren't going to put it in their hymnal. And then you've got feminist preachers and they say that the doctrine of God's wrath satisfied in the Son is nothing more than cosmic child abuse, quote and unquote. And in their efforts to exalt the grace of God, they strip God of his resolute hatred of sin and they forget that the God of the Old Testament is in perfect harmony with the God of the New. But there's another way, and this is what I want to end with, there's another way of perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. Ready? Here it is. Not only the hyper-grace crowd that can turn, turn into a license to sin, it doesn't matter, it's all going to be put on Christ, you can do whatever you want, that's hyper-grace crowd. But then you've got another way, and it's this, the idea that if you just... Get a second filling of the Spirit of God. You could become sinless. You could become sinless. I want you to hear this audio clip of someone who has preached that. I am not poor. I am not miserable. And I am not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is what I were. And if I still was, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's heresy and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says that I'm righteous and I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time. And that's Joyce Meyer. Joyce, my wife loves Joyce Meyer. She's done a lot of good. Really, really a lot of good, especially with women who have gone through difficult, painful, and abusive situations. She's been really good with that. But despite all of the good that Joyce does, to this, this week and next week, I'm going to show you some of the underpinnings of her doctrine. It doesn't come through in her radio spots. It comes through in her conference tapes and some of her books. I didn't stop sinning until I got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. Not one biblical saint ever claimed this pure spiritual condition called sinlessness. 
In fact, John says, if we say we, he's speaking as a Christian, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Paul wrote, if the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, listen, of who, whom I am the foremost. This is in Timothy right before he dies. They both knew John... The Apostle Paul, they both knew they were saved and being sanctified by grace. And one day they will be glorified, but that day is not yet. Now listen, if Mrs. Meyer would have said that she's no longer a sinner under the wrath of God or no longer held under the power of the mastery of sin, she'd be fine. That's the gospel. But, quote, I didn't stop sinning until, and, quote, I can be righteous, I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time blurs the line, blurs the difference between justification and the ongoing need for sanctification. Listen, you've got to know the truth. You've got to hear with discernment. God's grace declares us, Christian brother and sister, righteous in Christ because of his death on the cross in our place and his grace is at work in us through the Holy Spirit conforming us into Christ's likeness. But listen, I've not arrived. And you've not arrived. We live in these bodies of flesh and there is unregenerate tugging at our Christian souls that say, come back into sin. You know you want this. It's why temptation works. And that won't be done until death is eradicated when Christ comes back. Until then, we will struggle with sin, but we've got the power of God to sin less. Listen, it's not that we'll ever be sinless in this life. It's that we can learn to sin less. It's an ongoing process that won't reach completion until Jesus Christ glorifies us. Listen, grace can be twisted. And it can allow for a license to sin or as a declaration that I am now sinless. And it is wrongly taught. It is a wrongly taught understanding of grace that teaches the impossible standard of holiness. Listen, let me, or positive holiness rather, let me, let me put it this way. The battle with sin has caused some to doubt their salvation. I know people that have doubt their salvation. I can't stop sinning. Maybe I'm not a Christian. I know people that couldn't stop sinning and wanted to end their lives. I know people that couldn't stop sinning and so they turned away from faith because they kept hearing from teachers, you can stop sinning. They were hearing from preachers, I've reached sinlessness and you can too. And when you can't, you lose hope. So you can imagine how discouraging it can be to have Joyce Meyer teach a wrong doctrine of sinlessness, no matter how much good she's otherwise done for women. Be loving enough that you're willing to caution. Are you brave enough to caution? Be brave enough that you're willing to contend. Get in the ring. Listen well. Be gracious. But wield the word of God. It doesn't change. And be wise enough to be able to catch and discern, be knowledgeable enough that you'll be able to critique. Now let's know the truth, amen? Let's study the Word of God. Know the Word of God. You know the Word of God, you'll know the counterfeit.